Goedemorgen allemaal, welkom hier volgend bij die woordfeest en bij ons gesprek over uh, die boek Paper Tiger. Um, die gesprek zal hoofdzakelijk in Engels plaatsvinden. Um, als daarvan eerst wat uh, later, maar als vrouw tijd dit meer gemakkelijk voelen om een vraag in Afrikaans te stellen, is jullie welkom dit te doen en dan zal ik dit vertaal en die nodig. Um, so we are still waiting for one person, um, Dougie Oaks, who is also meant to join us, and that's why there's an open seat here. It's not because I'm practicing social distancing. <laughs> um, but um, I'd like to welcome the two authors of the book, um, Alidi Danois and Chris Whitfield here today. They are both um, co-authors of this book, Paper Tiger. Those of you that haven't read it yet, it's available over there in the bookstore, st I've already seen it this morning, um, and it is a riveting tale of a newspaper house and a, a publishing house that has, um, let's say, changed radically over the course of a number of years. And those of you that have maybe followed the news this week as well, there's the ongoing controversies around uh, independent media around equal survey uh, this week claims about um, somebody a student claiming that he was paid to write negative articles about equal survey for the Daily Maverick uh, those of you that follow the stock market or what's left of it after this week will know that the IO technologies is a lot of controversy around that company at the moment so it's it's um, it's uh, the, the book deals with a specific uh, historical or has a um, has its point of departure in an historic moment where we'll we'll speak a little bit more about that in a moment but it certainly is an evolving evolving story so welcome Chris and Lida um, I'd like you maybe to start um, just by briefly introducing yourselves a bit more and say where you fit into this picture, your history, your links with Independent, and how you've come to write this book. Okay, I, um, I was a political journalist for most of my career, and then subsequently became the editor of the Weekend Argus, and then the Cape Times, and then the Cape Argus, and I was editor-in-chief of Independent Newspapers Cape when the Irish Independent Newspapers sold it to Iqbal Survey. So, and um, our relationship went south very quickly, so that's where I fit in. Thank you, and let me first apologize for not being able to speak good enough Afrikaans to, to, to speak in Afrikaans. Thank you for having us here. Um, I, I've been a financial journalist most of my life most recently as editor of Business Report, and then I was deputy editor of the Cape Times under Tyrone August, and then editor of the Cape Times until I was fired by Iqbal Survey in 2013. Thank you. Um, so the, the story starts with the, with the night of Nelson Mandela, former President Nelson Mandela's death. Um, I was wondering if, and, and you brought uh, the, the newspaper of that Day with you today, so maybe you can take us back to that that evening and where this this all started. Tell us what happened on that night and how that set in motion the the whole chain of events that led to your dismissal later on. Thank you. So um, you will remember uh, that Nelson Mandela died on the night of the fifth to the sixth um, of December, twenty thirteen, and the staff of the of the Cape Times and the other newspapers in Cape Town, the other independent newspapers in Cape Town, had been at a, 
um, a Bosporat um, with the new owner, Iqbal Survey, at the Vineyard Hotel. And we had moved on to a dinner. And during the course of the dinner, we heard rumors that were increasingly becoming increasingly strong that Nelson Mandela was dying. And we rushed back to our newsrooms and started to prepare um, the newspaper of the next day. Now, during that day, we had already prepared, or the people left at the Cape Times had already prepared the first edition of the Cape Times, which goes out at about half past nine and is delivered, it has to go out early, the first edition, because it's delivered to quite far-flung places from Cape Town, George, Blittenberg Bay, and so on. And the lead on the front page of that edition was an article explaining a report by the public protector, uh, at, at that time it was still Tuli Madonsela, on a fisheries contract which had been given to a, a fish monitoring contract, which had been given by the Department of Sea Fisheries to companies in the same group as independent newspapers, in the second JALO group. And the public protector found that the contract had been improperly awarded. She suggested that the president might consider investigating possible prosecutions against some people in the Department of Sea Fisheries. And the implication was that, that there had been bribery involved, although she did not, it's not her mandate, she did not say anything about the private company involved, only about the department's officials. So that, that report had been long awaited. It was a very important report. Um, Cape Town is a, a coastal community. Fishing is important to us. It was an obvious lead for the, for the Cape Times on that day. It's a multi-billion, 800 million, I think, over five years report, of a very big story, basically. So we led the front page of the Cape Times with that story, as, as anyone, I think, would have done. That edition had already gone out when the president announced on television, about quarter to 11 or so, I think it was that night, that Nelson Mandela had indeed died. So we rushed to prepare a new edition of the Cape Times. And as editor, I and my colleagues, we, we had a choice to make. We could either change, we, there wasn't time to change many pages. We could either change the first four or so pages of the Cape Times, take away the, what was already on those pages and replace them with new stories, or we could prepare a mini edition of the Cape Times, which would wrap around the old edition. In, in newspaper jargon, it's called a wraparound, um, which would be devoted entirely to Nelson Mandela to the news of his death, to tributes to him, to a little editorial that we had written, to a timeline of his life, some of which we'd prepared long before and some of which we could do on the night. And it was a difficult decision. Most of the other newspapers, all the other newspapers in the group and most of the other newspapers in the country, Die Burger was an exception, um, decided to change their front pages. But we at the Cape Times decided to do it this way. So this was the little newspaper that we produced, devoted entirely to Nelson Mandela, into which the old edition folded. And that's what the second edition looked like when it was sent out to the retail shops. And just one last thing, if I may, Herman, just to say that that front page had all the elements of a front page. It had the barcode on it, which is what the tellers scan at Pick and Pay or NGEN when you buy your newspaper there. It had the date, and it had the masthead of the Cape Times. So those are the three elements that make up a front page. The next day, we were quite pleased with it. Chris, to whom I reported at the time, thought that our people had done quite a good job, although he, he, he might have done it differently had he been editor, but he, he was quite satisfied with the way we'd done it. And I was called into a meeting with the new owner, Iqbal Survey. We'll talk more about the meeting just now, to find that he was very angry, very, very angry with the way we dealt with the matter, and he fired me there on the spot on that Friday, the, the morning after Nelson Mandela died. And I haven't been back to the Cape Times since. 
Thanks. And, and then, um, Chris, maybe you can tell us what happened at the Cape Times then. I mean, you, it fell to you to announce a leader's uh, dismissal to, to staff the next yeah, morning. Yeah. Just to add to what Alita said, uh, she was ostensibly fired for disrespecting Nelson Mandela, but um, we remain convinced that the fact that the Cape Times covered the public protector reports into one of his companies, Equal Survey's companies, was, was the real reason and dared to cover it objectively and fairly. Um, and then, yes, I had to, uh, as editor-in-chief, I had to return to the Cape Times for a day as editor, announce it to the staff. They were very, very shocked and upset. And um, basically, we brought out a newspaper. The guys were very professional. And um, the next day, a new editor was brought in from outside. It was extraordinary extraordinary time and the beginning of what we call in the book a purge of um, what Iqbal said it was uh, dressed it up as transformation but um, if you do an analysis of the people who left uh, you, you almost without exception it was people who were independent minded people who would um, say they have their say and object for example to being told by a proprietor what they should do as journalists and how did things evolve from there? I mean, it, 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 today, I mean, the Cape Times looks very different from what it looked back then. I mean, and c can you give maybe for the benefit of people that don't follow the the, this, the the story that much? I mean, just tell us a little bit. How did things go? I mean, you said there was a purge. What else happened after after this event? I mean, was it the start of really of a, a longer process, really of un uh, hollowing out the the Cape Times, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean. The, to my mind, and a leader um, will have something to add, I'm sure, it, it, uh, it was a process which, um, broadly speaking, you could call dumbing down. Um, uh, the kind of journalism that the Cape Times st strove to produce uh, just started to disappear. Um, but I think that perhaps the one single thing that um, became very marked about it was the fact that Survey himself used the product as a vehicle for his own business interests. So suddenly they were producing these major stories about his businesses, which weren't, you know, no other business title would have bothered to do it. And uh, his own personal initiatives were given um, undue coverage. It really became, a, the entire group's newspapers actually became vehicles for his own ego and business interests. And if, if I can just add to that, um, yet, you know, as we've tried to explain in the book, yet when he bought the company, a, a lot of us, certainly me included, were quite excited because um, the Irish owners, as we, we've devoted a chapter or two to the previous owners of independent newspapers in the book, the Irish owners had effectively pillaged the company for the time that they had been owners. They, they hadn't interfered much. Uh, we've got one or two examples where they did interfere, some of them quite comic, but they hadn't interfered much with the editorial line. But what they did do was extract as much profit as they could from the South African company to feed back to an Irish company which, in their hometowns, which was increasingly on its last legs. So th there was an awful lot of looting, and our newsroom shrank and shrank and shrank. It's a process which Herman is very familiar with. Um, and we found that we were increasingly unable to, to do our jobs. And there's quite a lot of documentation in the book about exactly what that meant in each newsroom. Um, so when the rumors started to um, spread that the, the company was going to be sold, the South African company was going to be sold, we were actually quite excited, quite a lot of us. And when Iqbal Survey put his consortium together, 
it initially looked quite good. It was a broad-based consortium, a South African owner, quite a lot of well-known black investors, so black-empowered, and he said all the right things. You know, he said that he would preserve editorial independence. He said there would be an editorial charter. He said there would be an editorial board overlooking the newspapers and, and preserving editorial independence. So the, the signs were quite good initially. But it became very clear very fast. I think my, my firing was just a, quite a dramatic stage um, because it happened so fast. But it was just the beginning, actually. Much worse things were done to quite a lot of people over the course of the next few years, and for all we know, are still being done. Um, as Chris said, everybody who stood up to him was slowly edged out, and the newspapers just increasingly became a vehicle for, for what he had to say, either about politics or more, more often about his companies. Thanks. I mean, maybe let's let's return to to the book itself. Um, so the book, re I mean, it's it's. If you look at the, I, mean, I want to say something more about the the the, the transition from O'Reilly to uh, Second Charlie, etc. But later on, maybe. But um, maybe just tell us why why do you think it was important to write this book? I mean, um, is this revenge? Is this something something uh, bigger? What, why, why is it important that this book is out there? Why did you decide to devote so much time to this? Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think what, there's two, to my mind, there are two kind of uh, answers to that. And the one is that uh, the narrative that was being developed about transformation and us being embittered people who couldn't live with the new uh, South Africa, etc. Um, it was gaining, it was being put out there, so we wanted to address that. But the more important one and the central issue um, for the journalism students here is the issue of editorial independence. We felt that it was um, it, almost a case study of a uh, proprietor interfering with the independence of his editors and newspapers, and we wanted to document that in a way that was accessible. Mm -hmm. Can I just quickly add something? And we also wanted to tell a lot of people's different stories, which is also why we've told, the, tried to tell the story in the, well, we have told the story in the third person, which was, it, 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 it was quite a difficult decision to take. It started off as Chris and my story, and then we asked uh, a lot of other people to tell their stories, and we wove them in to the narrative as, as far as we could. So, you know, journalists, have a kind of commitment to the record, as you know, and we wanted the book to be a record of what happened over that time. As, as Chris says, the, the destruction of once proud newspapers, the, the, the destruction of their role as informing the citizens, and then the, 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 the very bad things that were done to a number of people, journalists who were really just trying to do their job and who sort of bravely, bravely went on under very difficult conditions until they were either purged or their lives were made so difficult that they couldn't stay. Maybe say a little bit more, if you want, about um, how you collaborated on this book. You, you mentioned referring to yourselves in the third person. So I must say it's, um, it's, it's very evident that you are both seasoned journalists. I mean, it's a, it's a very easy and um, entertaining, uh, if that's the right word, read. I mean, it, so it is, a, it is a form of journalism itself, isn't it? Um, but, but how did you collaborate? What's, what was your methodology? How did you set about writing it? <laughs> um. Uh, we both had chapters where we um, were kind of more invested than the other, so we started by working on our own, uh, on those various chapters, and we worked out a structure, um, and then we would meet and pour through the chapters that we'd written and make amendments and recommendations, 
and it was a long it was a long process. It took us a good few months, um, but finally we sat down with what we thought was a, an end product, and and I read it to a leader. And we while we're in that process, we we adjusted it quite significantly. So uh, yeah, that was essentially the literally what we did. Yeah. As as sources, we had a, a lot of documents, of course. Um, I mean, the newspapers themselves, it was quite easy to track what had happened to them because, you know, we'd kept good records of those. There were an awful lot of emails. Um, there was some material from a disciplinary hearing that I went through, which it was possible to use. There was a lot of material prepared by lawyers. Um, I, I, I mounted a labor court um, ch challenge to, 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 to my dismissal, which, in fact, was closed with a settlement. But the, the materials which the lawyers prepared over months and months and months was sort of very rich in information for, for our book also. And then um, we interviewed quite a lot of people. We did try uh, to interview Iqbal Survey and the new editors of the newspapers and various other people, um, senior executives in the group. I think with one exception, um, yeah. they either didn't answer or, or refused. But we got quite a lot of interviews from other people and we've woven those into the book, as I said. Why do you think that is? Is there, a, I mean, is there maybe a culture of fear for speaking out? Do you think at the newspaper at the moment, or is it is there really a group of people that are so loyal to him that they don't want to say anything bad about? Was that a difficult question to answer? I, I think there are quite a lot of people who are loyal to him and who owe him their. I mean, it's what we see happening all over the country, isn't it, at the moment? Who owe him their place, and who, quite frankly, would not get a place elsewhere. Some of them. And also an element of fear because, I mean, the, the way uh, Iqbal treated a leader, he's obviously not afraid of, of taking mm. quite uh, strict and severe action. So I think there's an element of that. Have you had any uh, comebacks about the book itself? Have you had any threats or criticism? Um, the Independent ran a series, a five-part series, which kind of r responded to it. but. Uh, to my mind, it was entirely fictional. And um, we've had people on Twitter and that uh, having a go at us, but mm. nothing, nothing legal, which we're quite pleased about because mm. we were very alert to that. Yeah. So if one looks at the, the cover of the book, you know, it's clear this is Iqbal Survey on the cover, the, 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 the very nice title, I think sort of also, you know, refers to him in a way. Um, but you've you've alluded to the the, the fact that this that the second Jalu take uh, took over the the newspaper group from Independent, and that before second Jalu took over, there had been this sort of erosion of um, resources. And you also mentioned that in the book that the it became very difficult at some point for journalists to do their job. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit about how much of the, 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 the problems that Independent is experiencing at the moment has to do with an individual and how much of it is systemic that also affects, because you've mentioned that the importance of this book is it's about editorial independence, right? And so we've seen other, at the SABC for instance, uh, uh, under Claudi Mutsuneng, I mean there's similar type of inter, uh, in, uh, erosion of editorial independence. How much of you think this is, of this is more widespread? Commercial pressures, uh, interference by owners and, and editors, and how much has to do with this a very specific personality that we're dealing with? 
I think Chris is probably better. He's got more experience on more newspapers. So I'll let him mostly answer that. But um, what I can say is that in my time at the Cape Times, um, I can really only speak for that. In, in my time as editor of the Cape Times, in spite of the of, of the pressures on us, and I've I documented in the book, um, in well, we've, we've we've used in the book letters that I wrote at the time to the chief executive, explaining how the Cape Times had changed since its heyday until the time that I was there, how many fewer reporters of all sorts there were, how, fewer, how many fewer sub-editors there were, how we were sharing resources with other newspapers which used to be specific to the Cape Times, how all sorts of things had closed down, you know, from the Africa service, which used to have people in other African cities, to the world service, with people in Washington or London and so on. But more importantly, just in the newsroom of the Cape Times, how we had to make choices every day between covering this story or covering that story, when actually both should have been covered. So we have tried to, to, to document that in the book. But there was one thing through all that time and until the new owners came in. We were allowed to cover things in the way that we thought best, in the way that we th- Best, that we thought could best serve the, the, the readers of Cape Town. There were no pressures on us to cover this rather than that. They were decisions that we made ourselves with the limited resources that we had. And that is what's changed. So it would be foolish to pretend that the, any of these newspapers were great newspapers before. They, they had been eroded, like newspapers all over the world. The internet challenge, of course, had, had, hit, had hit us too. But we, we had integrity, or we tried to maintain integrity. We, we tried as best we could to report on this city and this country with our limited resources without answering to any other agenda but that. And that's what changed. Mm. Yeah, um, obviously it would be stupid to deny the systemic uh, factors which have had an impact on all newspapers um, across the board. But in this particular case, the decline was kind of along the lines of most other titles around the world and it was escalated from 2014 when when Iqbal took over and again it was escalated because of the cutting back of resources which he which um, we Lee and I were talking on the way here about the transformation of these alleged transformation of these newspapers and I would argue that with the resources they've got in their newsrooms now they are less capable of covering a township, for example, a Kailicha, than it was 20 years ago. So the transformation has actually gone backwards. Um, and then there's the, the, the personal factor, the Iqbal's agenda being used in the newspaper um, for politics, just for his ego, his picture appearing all the time, mm-hmm. and, um, and for his business interests, which have undermined the newspapers terribly. To my mind, and so the, the decline in the Cape Times, Cape August, all the independent newspapers escalated from the moment he took over. Right. I want to flip that question a little bit as well in the sense that, yes, they, as you say, there had been systemic issues, um, but they were amplified and exacerbated by a survey themselves. But to what extent do you think this um, has now also damaged journalism and in the country to a broader extent. I mean, yeah. he is withdrawn from the uh, press council, um, established, independent established their own uh, body, which now this week I read is also now defunct. Mm. So there's no oversight, editorial oversight, yeah. independent oversight. Yeah. I mean, at some point, the, I guess the newspaper house has to change its name. It's very difficult to, to talk about independent yeah. news. But I mean, it's, um, it's very, there's no, there's no uh, self-regulation, uh, um, self-regulatory oversight. 
and it's become difficult to know whether one can trust what you read in the in the newspapers and 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 as there is a big problem with misinformation lack of trust in journalism in general isn't this undermining the the status of journalism more broadly so it's not a problem only about a specific newspaper a specific newspaper house and a and a and a uh, specific personality, but it has to do with the institution and the profession itself. I, th I think uh, the, the impact has been very, very serious for journalism. These newspapers, um, the, the previously it was known as Auntie Argus, and they were quite bland, but they were good papers of record. If you came to Cape Town, you could pick up the Cape Times, and you would get a sense of what's happening in Cape Town. Um, now, you read the Cape Times, there's probably two, two pieces in the entire newspaper that are relevant to to you and um, and journalism has been yeah grotesquely undermined by by what's happened there. I think it's a very very serious issue. You've now got I mean entirely obviously fake news making itself its way into the papers. The the um, example you you listed of the allegations against the Daily Maverick that they were paying some guy to write negative stories about Iqbal. It's Patently untrue if you if you interrogate the stories just for five minutes, and there it's having a very I think a very very negative effect on the journalism and on the democracy because the you know newspaper plays an important role of keeping people informed and 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 enabling them to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add something? Okay. I mean, there's also the, uh, a point at which one wonders um, around this this whole um, debacle around AI technologies that um, survey was also uh, and, and you know involved with, and there are all sorts of allegations at the moment around the um, you know its listing and its share price and the PIC getting involved in this sort of involvement with state capture and all of that. Um, and the response in the Cape Times, if you read the business report there, it's been to sort of try and prop it up. I mean, is there, is, would, in your mind, do you think the Cape Times and, uh, at the moment is engaging in unethical journalism? Is there, can we be as bold to say that, you know, this is what they're doing is unethical um, or is it just poor journalism? Well, I'll leave that to, uh, to, to, to the audience to judge. Let's give a, a couple of examples. I mean, there's the example that Chris has given of a patently made-up story um, about somebody being paid to write articles about Iqbal Survey. But there are others which we've gone into in the book. I mean, you'll remember that, that he, he tried to, to list a company, Iqbal Survey tried to list a company called Sagamatha, and it failed. And the, the reason why he wanted to list it was perfectly clear. He, he needed to rescue independent newspapers in one way or another. So he was going to package all his assets into a new company, throw it onto the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, raise new money. And the, the mechanisms have been very well described, not by us, by, by, by other journalists. It's, the references are easy to find. What is interesting is the way he then recruited his own newspapers to pump up this company. Um, and the, the, the references to Sagamatha outside independent newspapers are very few, but inside independent newspapers there are very many, and they, they range from pumping up the, one of the um, executives, a, a man called Paul Lamontagne, whom no one had ever heard of until then, who suddenly became a figure that appeared in Business Report over and over again, to Sagamatha, to the concept of the African uniform, unicorn, sorry, we've, we've, we've got examples of all this in the book with, um, um, with, with numbers in them, but I think if, if that's not an unethical, I, I, I don't know what it is. The, the, the owners 
attempt to list a new company covered in that way in the owner's newspaper when other newspapers are not covering it at all, or certainly not in the same way, it's clearly an attempt to talk up the share price to, and eventually to allow survey to make money out of the whole deal. Because let's not forget, I mean, that's what's at the bottom of all this, is how much money can be made by this company out of these, by using these newspapers. It's using the newspapers for a corporate agenda, which in the end is about profit. Up to you to decide if that's ethical. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to t turn to the audience in a, in a few minutes um, to ask questions. I um, just wanted to say, uh, again, back to the question of the, the profession, if you want to use that term, or the, the industry in, in the, the broader sense. Um, at the moment, there's an inquiry into media ethics under, uh, underway with a uh, retired judge, Cathy uh, Satchwell. Um, there, is a, there has been, since at least since the advent of democracy, constant debates around the media's role in society, ethical questions, etc. Um, so, if you look at the broader industry and you look at the, the, the journalism in the country, are there any sort of let's say similarities or any warning signs from what you see happened at the Cape Times and then the independent media that you would like to warn journalists in general about? Some some worrying tendencies, or maybe just the state of the of, of journalism in the country as a whole is it is it healthy? I think there is cause for concern. The Sunday Times and Business Day have been bought by new owners, and we don't know uh, if they're going to sort of follow a similar path. Um, there seems to be a bit of an exodus of people from there now, so one will need to watch that. Um, but on the broader question about the the media in South Africa, if I was to advise people where to go for quality information. Um, I don't think they, it's, it's, it's a very difficult to say this is one source. I would say News 24, but then you need to read it in a certain way and understand where you will find the good stuff. Daily Maverick for analysis. Um, there's some good stuff on Time Select. You'd have, you, there's not, a, there's not a, a repository of quality information in one place. I might say, though, that the Afrikaans newspapers are, are considerably better than the English language at the moment. Then, Alida, you also now work for a community uh, newspaper or a news site, I want to say, I guess, uh, Ground Up, um, which fulfills a very different, but to my mind, a very important function um, of, of a type of community journalism, as the name suggests. Um, what about the plurality and the diversity of journalism in the country? Do we have enough different views, different voices, different perspectives coming out? Um, and I'm not um, only referring to sort of different political views, but also just people's experiences of life in general. Um, are they um, sufficiently reflected in the media? I think that's a very important question, and, and in, in the, the pre-Iqbal survey days, in the, in, the, in the days of the Irish, that is some, something that we did flag. Actually, as all the journalism students and teachers will know, um, the stories that are hardest to do are often the stories that involve um, the poor, because often the newspapers and their reporters are, are not in that place and they need to go, even if it's just to a township. You must have somebody who speaks the right language. It, you have to find the right people. It's very easy to, or much easier, to, to write something based on a press release or where you need to get hold of a government person, although government people are not always easy to get hold of, but 
easier still, or a corporate, um, a public relations expert representing a, a corporate, for instance. It's much harder to do a story about a drain in, in Kailicha that has been overflowing, or even more difficult in Lusikisiki um, in the Eastern Cape. So those are the stories that are expensive. Um, and those are the stories that are being done less and less. At, at Ground Up, we've tried in a small way. We're an online news agency focusing on those sort of stories. We've tried to create a small network of people writing from those little towns and from less well-reported parts of the big cities. But we are a drop in the ocean compared to what South Africa needs. At its best, I think, the SABC used to tell one part of the country what was happening in another part of the country. The SABC had a very good network of people in the Northern Cape and Limpopo and, and so on. That, that has also been part of the recent collapse of, of, of journalism that, that Chris has referred to. Not that there aren't, of course, very good journalists at the SABC, at the Daily Maverick, in News 24, all over the country. But I think their job is getting harder and harder. Um, and the result is that we, we know less and less about each other um, and, and less and less about the, the people um, furthest from us, furthest from the newsrooms, actually. And, and that, is, that is very serious. Mm. Um, I'm going to ask a last question and then, then ask for some questions from the floor. Um, I know there are journalism students in the audience. Um, I teach at a place where, um, in fact, fewer and fewer uh, students seem to be wanting to go into journalism proper. They, 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 the, the media landscape is now so wide and diverse that people can do all sorts of things. Um, what would you advise young people that are interested in the field? I mean, um, what is there to do? Where should they go? Um, is this still a, a, a career path to, um, to consider? <laughs> um, credible journalism is going to be very, very important in the sort of increasing noise around information at the moment, particularly coming from social media. It's kind of like a, it's like an oasis where you can go and find, um, you can be find reliable information. But as far as where people can go, um, it's moving into a digital world, and I think that's the kind of area that 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 young people should begin to explore. And obviously, television and radio will be around for a while. But print is, is becoming very mm. diminishing. Yeah. Mm. But I, I do hope that, that lots of young people will still, will still accept the challenge and move into journalism. I mean, this coronavirus thing is a very good example of how important good journalism is. I mean, if you relied on Twitter or Facebook or stuff, stuff like that, you would believe all sorts of things, from the, fact, you know, from the idea that you can eat enough garlic, then you won't get sick, to the idea that black people won't get it anyway because somehow black skin has an immunity, to the idea that we're all going to die. Uh, I mean, if you, if you relied on that, you, who knows what you would do in the way of behavior. Whereas if you, if you have a site that you can trust, and of course, in the absence of journalism, there are all sorts of things, the World Health Organization, the National Institute of Communicable Diseases, and, and lots of authorities. But the job of good journalists is to distill the best of that and offer it to you in a way that, or to me, in a way that I can understand. Um, otherwise, we are at the mercy of, of rumor and opinion and, and people who don't check their facts. So I, I, I think actually social media, I'm not the only one, of course, who has said this, social media has made journalism more important than ever. And I, I hope that young people don't turn away from it as a career. Thank you. Well, there you have it. There's the challenge. Let's hear from some of the 
aspiring journalists and others in the room, there's a, there's a question there. I'm so sorry, I have two questions. I know we're usually told not to do this. <laughs> as um, long as they're questions and not <laughs> comments. <laughs> so I remember earlier you said with Madiba's death that the Cape Times had prepared articles beforehand. So I just want to know with events like his death, how long before do you guys prep for it? Okay, um, we had prepared supplements actually uh, years, two years before beforehand. So in the week after he died, we had these supplements that came out in all independent newspapers with stuff from other politicians, from Tabo and Berkey, Carter Asmal, uh, various international people. Bill Clinton wrote in one of them. Um, so that sort of thing, the, you know, the kind of background stuff you can prepare well beforehand. A lot of um, newspapers used to have obituary writers who would write obituaries beforehand. So you know, somebody's getting quite old they, they, and they prepare an obituary. Um, but there's only a certain amount you can do. Um, when, when on a person of Nelson Mandela's uh, stature dies, there's a whole up, outpouring of emotion and information and so you have to also be alert to that. Um, so you can prepare a lot but not all of it. Okay, thank you. Um, my second question is because earlier you also said that the Afrikaans newspapers at the, mo at the moment are a lot better than the English ones. So I just want to know what has made them a lot better. Like is it the content? Is it the way that they're writing? Yeah, sorry, I'm taking all the questions here. No, the, um, <laughs> I think the, it's, the, they have an easier job because they have a, a, a prescribed market and they're talking to people who they you know, understand um, better than whereas the English language newspapers have got quite a broad market and across different communities. So there is that aspect to it. And I think generally speaking, um, they've kept, they've resourced them well. They're, there's a passion for in Media 24, for example, there's a passion for those newspapers that goes beyond uh, just making money. It's, uh, they see them as uh, vehicles for their community. Um, and, they, and, so in other, and so they have, they do resource them better than, for example, the in, far better than any of the independent papers. Thank you. Alida, did you want to add anything to that? I, I don't know the, the newspaper landscape nearly as well as Chris, but I can give you my, uh, an impression of mine, um, which is that the Afrikaans newspapers have not diverged as far as most of the English-speaking newspapers from the old idea of going out, finding out something, checking the facts and writing it down, which is you know, the journalism of, of my generation. Um, I, I, I think there's an awful lot of opinion sloshing around South Africa at the moment. We are an opinionated people, and it's, opinion is cheap. And a lot of the other newspapers have either based their own news stories on opinion or fill their pages with opinion. Whereas the idea of having somebody who saw something in a place and can explain it is actually the essence of journalism. And I think that there's more of that still in a newspaper like Die Burger, certainly, than there is in the Cape Times. Thank you. More questions? There's one at the back. So I don't quite agree with the Afrikaans newspaper assessment. I think there are certain topics Afrikaans newspapers just don't touch, especially when you think of their link with News 24, NASBAR, Media 24 link with the journalism department here. But that left there. I was interested, what do you think about Chinese influence, government influence in the South African media landscape? 
if somebody writes a letter to a paper at the moment, it's quite common that within a week you'll see a full half-page advertorial from the Chinese ambassador, maybe even attacking that person in. It's especially visible in independent newspapers. They'll attack them in maybe five newspapers nationally, three, four, take out half-page advertorials, and then they leave say, Gmail addresses at the bottom, like essaychineseconsulate at gmail.com. What do you think about the Chinese influence in our media landscape and how they, especially independent media? And of course, there's, there's also in the book you do mention also that uh, we didn't touch on that yet, but the, the Chinese um, component of the consortium that actually also purchased uh, Second Jala or enabled Second Jala to purchase the newspapers. Yes, and, and, and I believe has, has injected some money into the failing independent newspapers since, although you know, since it's not a listed company, there's not, we don't know everything that we would like to know about that. So you know, there's no doubt that um, Ch Chinese money has helped um, uh, Iqbal survey, and the, the Chinese investors have not withdrawn their, their investments, so we must assume that they are happy enough with it. Um, about the rest, I, I've noticed that quite a lot of, in fact, Chris and I were talking about it on the way here, quite a lot of those advertorials from the Chinese government about the COVID-19 virus, for instance, are now appearing in Business Day, which suggests to me also that the Chinese know that the, the, well, whoever puts those ads in, the, the consulate or whoever it is, knows that the best way to reach people is no longer through business report, that actually it's more efficient to put them in, into Business Day, which is itself quite interesting. But what I would say, um, as long as those appear as advertorial, I don't think that, I don't find it alarming. Um, as, as long as they are clearly marked as where they come from and who they represent, that's not yet dangerous. It's when it starts to seep into the editorial columns, it's when it starts to be presented as fact, when it hasn't been tested, that, that we need to worry. And I, I, I'm not in touch enough to, to see whether that's happening. I mean, as you, as you may know, um, there are very, very bitter fights between advertising people and editorial people about the way those advertorials look. I mean, I know when I was at the Cape Times, and, and Chris will corroborate with his much longer experience, we used to argue about how thick the line is that separates the editorial columns from the advertorial, with the edit advertising people saying, no, but that's too thick, because of course they want, it to look, they want to be able to tell their clients, it's going to look like it was written by the journalists they're not allowed to use the same font, or they weren't at the Cape Times when I was there, they're not allowed to use the same headline font. It's got to have the word advertorial on it, or paid for, or advertising, or something. So th th those are very bitter fights, but of course, as newspapers become more and more dependent on income, so those fights will become harder and harder, and, how, and so advertorial will tend to creep in. But as long as it's still distinguished from what the journalists have written, I, I, I don't think we need to be alarmed wherever it comes from. I think in independent, there certainly has been an element of uh, promotion of Chinese interests. Uh, a columnist who criticized the Chinese government was fired summarily. Um, and you will see, I mean, the, the, I think the, the Chinese, was it the Chinese Communist Party, that front page lead? Yes, it Most was. Most bizarre, yes. bizarre front page lead ever in a South African newspaper was on the Chinese Communist Party. You know, it's very little interest in South Africa, and it was just straight up and down report on it. Especially so, in the way. Yeah, yeah. So. That's right. Um, so yeah, there, uh, there, I would say there's definitely been uh, a special treatment for the Chinese by independent newspapers. 
Maybe if I just sort of add on to them, another part of that question was, and we know that NASPAS, for instance, also has Tencent, and significant interest mm. in Tencent, and I mean, there has been criticism about um, them not always uh, tackling issues of free speech in China head on, you know, as part of their, you know, was maybe as a result, it has yeah. been implied um, of that relationship. Um, so, is this, I mean, this is obviously egregious examples, but I mean, is something like complete editorial independence always possible? Any, any possible at all? I mean, is there always some sort of negotiation, some sort of um, tango? Uh, you know, is, is the idea of complete editorial independence from ownership not a sort of a pipe dream? I think you have to concede uh, as much that the purest model of editorial ownership which evolved over the years, editors were appointed by owners and then left alone. Obviously the owners would appoint editors who, were, who they felt would be sympathetic to their world views. Um, so the, you know, that you, you will never escape from. But I do think there were, there were uh, people, ca you know, there have been proprietors who do respect uh, independence of newspapers. Um, it's becoming, as a leader suggested just now, it's becoming increasingly rare given the economic pressures on newspapers. But, I mean, you know, people can be, can be ethical and, uh, and there have been instances of it in the media industry. There are also new forms of ownership, new forms of uh, new business models emerging. Mm -hmm. I mean, The Guardian has been the classic example of a trust, um, but, but now they're increasingly also um, sort of fundraising from sort of membership models or NGO models, um, donor-funded journalism. Do you have any uh, ideas around that? I mean, uh, for instance, maybe your experience with Ground Up is a, it's a very different uh, type of uh, structure? Yes, Ground Up, this news little online news agency, we, we get all our money from donors, a little bit of money from readers, but most of our readers don't have that sort of money. So all our money comes from donors. The names of the donors are listed on the Ground Up website. Um, but the, the, the strange sort of irony of that is that all our material, we publish under a Creative Commons license, so all our material is offered free to the mainstream media, and actually 70% of it is republished. So you may well, without noticing it, have seen, in fact you will have seen ground up stories in um, the News24 newspapers, in the Times Live newspapers, um, in some even of the independent newspapers. So here you have a situation of donor-funded journalism being used in the for-profit media, which in itself is a strange, when you think about it, is a kind of a strange, a strange structure, really. But I think um, w one of the things that will come out of this actual inquiry, I, I think, is a debate on media ownership generally. Because I think there are other forms that we could explore. A, a trust is one, and in the book we, we've detailed how um, some of us tried to set up a trust at independent newspapers at the time when we knew that South, the South African arm was going to be sold, so before it was bought by Sekunjalo, a staff trust. And we got a lot of support from the, from the staff, and we actually even approached the PIC in those days, and we, it was the Prima Gila days, and we got quite a lot of support from the PIC too. But when, when it was finally bought by the Second Jala Consortium, they, they weren't very interested in the trust. So I think a staff trust is, is one possibility. Our goal was to raise enough money to fund a 25% stake, because a 25% stake gives you a seat or two on the board. And with a seat or two on the board, you have a chance of keeping other, other corporate interests a little bit at bay. Um, that is one possibility. 
bringing in readers. Uh, the Le Monde has a, has a tra in France has a trust which is formed by readers and, and staff. So, or two trusts, I'm not sure, that come together in, in some or other structure. So bringing in readers is another possibility. And then Chris and I were talking about this on the way here. Even bringing in the state is, 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 a, is, a, is a possibility we should not throw out. I mean, at the moment, we're all understandably anxious about anything that the state has its hands in. But with ESCOM and state capture, very recent or ongoing traumas. But that doesn't mean that in itself um, some subsidy from the state, it happens in other countries, Norway, France, I'm sure lots of African countries too, that with the right checks and balances, subsidies from the state can be a way to fund journalism if you believe that journalism is a public good, which I do. And, and if it can't be left to the sort of vagaries of, of, of the market. So there are lots of ideas around, and um, I think it's a very good debate, especially for young journalists to have. Thank you. More questions? There? there and there? Okay, we have two over there and two over here. Shall we take them as a group maybe and then people can respond, uh, the panelists can respond? I would like to make two comments. Number one, don't you think that we should consider an advising Iqbal survey to change the name of the Cape Times to Surveys Bell Pottinger? <laughs> First comment. Second comment, I'm a total novice when it comes to the print media. But do yourself a favor, when you go out there today, go and buy the three newspapers, uh, regional and or national, that you can buy in Stellenbosch. And I judge the health of the print, printed newspaper and the company behind that by the motoring supplement. Look at the thickness, look at the number of articles, and look at the quality of the article. Thank you. Let's take, let's, we have only a few minutes left, so I'm going to take all these questions as a group and then the panelists can respond over there. Yes? Good morning. Okay. Um, uh, you mentioned something about print media and the decline of print media. I would just like to know your ideas around it. Do you, do you believe there's hope for print media, especially with the technological incline? And what are your ideas around that? Thank you. So, and then two questions in the front here. Okay, Hi. Um, considering that this isn't a unique situation that um, newspaper groups could be or have been bought by other entities and they control uh, what uh, gets reported on. How, how are they not safeguards or what are the safeguards we could implement that such things cannot happen because this is something that repeats itself? Okay, maybe let's, let's take those and then and we will have time for another uh, another two questions in front. Maybe do you want to respond to those? The leader's been taking notes. Yes, uh, <laughs> better equipped. <laughs> well, the motoring supplement, I, mean, I, I very much like your comment. The, the motoring supplement was a very important part of the revenue yeah. of the Cape Times when I was there anyway. Now, if you want to add to uh, uh, just, just to respond uh, to the health of newspapers, the way, you can, the way you can judge them is the amount of advertising they've got in their newspapers. And these papers, the Cape Times now, I have absolutely no doubt it's making a, a, a quite a serious loss, as is the Argus, as are just about all the independent papers. Do you want to say something about hopeful print? Is there hopeful uh, print? Hopeful print. <laughs> <laughs> I think the trajectory of print is such that it is, it's, there is not, I mean, it's going to last for probably much longer than people have predicted. But I think you might find in time you will have very small products very, very um, niched 
Um, but I don't think kind of mainstream print media is going to exist in its present form for too long. If I can just add, add a, a personal comment. What, what I regret about that um, for, for, for journalists coming into the profession now is that I think print teaches you a sort of discipline that online media may not teach you. And I'm not a journalism teacher I'm in the presence of a journalism professor. But I know for me, making the shift from print to online was a very big mind shift. Um, so suddenly I was in a place where there was no limit to the number of words that could be written, for one thing. Um, so we, when you edit, you, know, you don't really know. Those boundaries have completely dissolved. But secondly, there's no need to fill a page. So uh, an, uh, an, an online site can print, can, can, can publish one story or, or 30. There's no, there are no boundaries there either. So um, me personally, I'm, I miss the discipline that, that print taught me because I was lucky enough to grow up in journalism in a time when print was still there. And I'm not sure how those disciplines translate um, if you only work online. So I at least hope that print lasts long enough for young journalists to have a time in print before they move into whatever else they're gonna do. Okay, we, we have time for two or well, three questions in front here, yeah, then no we'll part. have a, a final no, round of responses. There was one other question, question. about oh, safeguards. Oh, sorry, so do you want to respond? Why are there no safeguards? Yeah, you go for it. Well, I'm not sure where the safeguards could come from. I, I, um, I, you know, we, we don't want um, a state media tribunal. Um, we fought that fight, and for the moment we seem to have won it. Uh, let's hope that it doesn't um, surface again. Um, where could the safeguards come from, if not from the readers, the staff themselves? An editorial board, which is, as I said earlier, what was promised to us at independent newspapers, an editorial charter negotiated and fought over by trade unions or the National Editors Forum, those are possible safeguards. I'm not sure if there are any others. No, I don't think there are. Okay, let's take these questions in front here. Has Dr. Survey in any way responded to the publication of the book. Um, yeah. Okay, thanks. Uh, Iqbal Survey responded to the publication of the book. Was the question? So the, 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 the other independent, uh, the other uh, newspapers in, in, the, in, the, in the independent stable, the Star, Pretoria News, Mercury, etc., is the same uh, uh, degrading occurring there? That's the one question. The second one is uh, this investment of the Public Investment Corporation. Uh, and all the hanky-panky that appears uh, to have gone on there. Is that now cleared up? Uh, thank you. And then the last question there at the, at the back. I have a lot of um politieke dinge in the briefies. Naturally, it is so that all of us know that Africa is in the knack. On all flakken. The politics, the try to Zet Afrika op een goede plek krijgen. Hulle is so bezig om te probeer dat het die gebeur nie. Nou, in die verlede het die Zuid-Afrikaners bekend gestaan, as die, of liever die Afrikaners dan, nou wat dit nou ook al mag wees op wat vlak, dat hulle nie, uh, they don't speak up, wanneer dinge nie vir hulle uh, reg is nie. En wat my bekommer is, dat die powers that be vinnig reageer, en die ding net shut up en mense stil maak, maar intussen is hulle bezig om te probeer om die land op te hef en vir Zuid-Afrika iwerste uh, goeie voetstuk te kry in die wereld. Hoe kan jy so functioneer dat as jy in een hoë positie is, jy net 
uh, eenvoudig hier besluit neem. Ik wil weet in, aan die ene kant hoe die uh, politieke rol speelt, die, die leiders, hulle mag natuurlijk om organisaties zoals die NIS, wat moet uh, uh, onafhankelijk wees. Vraag, um, misschien niet in die vraag, die, die vraag is... Ja, mijn vraag is niet, uh, is dat is moeilijkheid om rechtig op te staan? Kijk, verzoom maar, ik weet hoe lang het ons omgevat, okay. voor iemand iets probeer doen het. Oké, okay. dank je. So the question is, is it possible to really stand up against, uh, to power and maybe then also in the, the role of the media in, in assisting that sort of resistance? Um, along those lines. And then the questions around surveys, response, and um, the other titles in the group, and the PIC uh, debacle. Yeah. So a mouthful in one minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Very quickly, a survey hasn't himself responded, but he, as I mentioned earlier, his newspapers uh, ran a series where they debunked, uh, tried to debunk everything we said in the, in the book. And it was very evident that it was his hand behind that. Um, the other newspapers, yes, there is a similar degradation. I think the Cape Town one was more pronounced because that's his base. And he had more of a hand on the papers. I know the kind of purge of people started in the Cape and was more severe in the Cape than anywhere else. Um, the PRC, we're waiting for the inquiry to come out now to be to be made public. It's apparent it's been completed. Uh, the inquiry into the PRC, which deals with the loan to independent newspapers. So we'll wait and see about that. He's already published st um, stories saying that he's been entirely vindicated by that. But uh, the way he's behaving suggests there might be more to it than meets the eye. And, and the PIC, PIC itself, um, which has been handed the report by the president, we know the PIC itself has started taking action against some of the people who were there at that time. So the indications are that something will happen. About standing up to power, well, I think, you know, there we really can pay tribute to the, and I'm sorry I can't reply to you in Afrikaans, um, there we really can pay tribute to the journalists who have exposed um, the, the, the corruption. The people at the Daily Maverick in News 24, in Times Tumble Media, Dhani. and so on, who did stand up to power and are continuing to do so and are scratching away a little bit more every day. I think if it hadn't been for them, there would not be a Zondo Commission and we wouldn't know half of what's gone on. We're very lucky in this country that we've got very good investigative journalists and they are doing a great job uh, doing exactly what you're calling for people to do. Well, our time is up. There are people waiting at the door for the next session. So thank you very much, Chris and Lydia, for your time. Thank you for your insights and also for the inspiration that I hope that, um, that you've also given to, to young journalists um, and the importance of the role of an independent and free media. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Very much. Thank you.